Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Seth Morris. People are looking at me like, is that a baby or is that a big weird log of cheese? That and more. But before that, I just want to let you know, you know, we put so much work into everything that we do here at Risk. There are I, I don't know exactly how many. I think there's 20 or maybe a couple more than 20 people who do various things for us on our staff. You know, we have our workshops that we teach. We have all these live shows that we prep. We have these radio style stories we're always working on. It's just a lot to keep this podcast running. And that's why we are so indebted to our fans who help us do that by becoming patrons of ours at patreon.com slash risk. But the beautiful thing is that by becoming a patron of ours there, you know, for any dollar amount that's good for you per month, but for certain dollars amounts, you can get the ad-free versions of the episodes exactly when they come out on the free feed. Uh, You can get the remastered episodes from our first couple years. Uh, You get our check-ins. I do these sort of journal entry kind of check-ins and ask me anythings and interviews with people on the staff. Lots of Bonus stories, stories from our archives that have never been heard on the podcast before. It is so rewarding to be a member of ours at Patreon. So get on over there. It's at patreon.com slash risk. And you know, the latest idea we had was that we could have fans send us recordings, audio recordings, you know, about two minutes to five minutes long, where you could say, you know, here's my reaction, my thoughts and feelings about this story that you guys aired two weeks ago. And I could play that clip in one of these Patreon check-ins I create, and then I'll react to your reaction and talk about how I felt about the story. Just yet another way that we thought it would be really fun to create engagement and conversation and great content over there at patreon.com slash risk. And you can email me those recordings at kevin at risk-show.com. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Funkalisto behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Second Chances. I don't think that title needs any explanation. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Rhonda Marwa. She shared this lovely story with us the last time that Risk was in Milwaukee. But we're going to start with a story that was shared, oh my god, years ago, actually. I think it was 2017 when we were in San Francisco for the San Francisco Sketch Fest. Seth Morris is just a hilarious guy, a great writer, a great improviser, great actor. 
based in Los Angeles now, but he came to our San Francisco Sketchfest show in uh, 2017 and told this remarkable story that brings to mind that old inclination to go off and do the Jack Kerouac thing and how that can sometimes not work out so well. You can find Seth on Seth is Morris uh, at on Twitter. And here he is now with a story we call Recipe for Disaster. So uh, my story is about my messy attempt at having kind of a uh, Jack Kerouac existence. Um, in, it was about 1991 or 92, and uh, the two things that I loved to do at that time were to travel and to storm out of places in a fit of rage. <laughs> and in, it did, really didn't take much, you know, most of the, in my head the fits of rage were like I'd give a speech like, you people are fucked, I'm never going to be like you, I'm out of here. But the reality would be like, you can't, I'm not, no. And then I was gone. Uh, and I got my perfect combination for both of those, to excuse to do both of those things, when the girl that I was seeing uh, cheated on me with a friend of mine. And I decided, that's it, I'm dropping out of college, I'm moving to Seattle. And let me just back up, because it was a sort of a nerf version of that, in that she was really a girl that I was seeing they kind of just made out, and it was junior college that I dropped out of. <laughs> but still, I did it in a very dramatic way. So uh, I hitchhiked up to Seattle, and it wasn't so much that my heart was broken, which it was a little bit, but it was just like I was tired of living in this fishbowl. I was tired of living in a place where like, people that I knew could fuck other people that I knew or make out with other... It just, it just felt like small town, and it felt like the world was small, you know? And one of the reasons I like Jack Kerouac is this sense of adventure and this idea that out there on the road, the world was big and that's what I wanted. Two Jack Kerouac quotes that come to mind were, I had nothing to offer anybody except my own confusion. And there was nowhere to go but everywhere, so just keep on rolling under the stars. Fuck yeah. <laughs> and the hitchhiking part of the trip was amazing. Instantly, it was great. I met people I would have never met. I had this mental game that I would play with myself because I was like, I know the world is dangerous, but I also want to know that the world is beautiful and I want to be able to attract that. So I had this mental game where I would imagine a golden lasso at the end of my thumb and I would cast it out, be like, good vibes, good rides, and I'd be catching that. <laughs> but then I also had this plan of like, okay, if I get somebody weird, I'm gonna stick my thumbs as far into their eye sockets as I can. <laughs> And then just hope for the best, because, you know, I don't want to get raped or robbed, and that's a reality we may have to face. So I had some great rides. I got a ride with a, a deaf park ranger, who we, he would only communicate by writing things down. I got a ride with a woman from Palestine who said something like, you know, she could tell I was a seeker. I was traveling. She goes, your life will be telling you what it wants you to do. All you have to do is open your heart and listen. I was like, that is exactly why I took this trip. <laughs> I got a ride, a long ride, spent the whole day into the night with this older guy who's a rancher. 
he had stormed out of his house, he got in a fight with his wife, stormed out of his house, and he was driving up to Pelican Bay Prison where his uh, sister was a guard. And he had these amazing stories, you know. He talked about how when he had torn off his thumb in the rodeo, I was like, this is fucking amazing, this is great. <laughs> he, he had been a high arc welder. He would welded a bunch of the bridges that we passed. He told me those stories, this is amazing. He talked about how he was in the Marines, he got involved with the Filipino mafia and helped bring speed to the Bay Area. I was like, yes, this is amazing. And then we're driving at night through the Redwoods and it was just like a movie. He goes, I've lived a good life. I've been a good man. The only thing I've ever done is kill a man. <laughs> you know, fucking car lights go by. I'm like, oh, God. So I finally get up to Seattle, and uh, I'm like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to start my adventure. I don't know what it is. I don't know anybody in Seattle. I get a room in a flop house. Um, it's like an old Victorian with maybe nine bedrooms, but they put plywood walls in, so then there's about 23 people that live there. Um, and it was, it just, it looked like, the, it was like a, it looked like just a wet house. <laughs> it just, I don't know if it was damp, but it just, this, when I think of walking through there, I just think of squishing, you know? And there was like a little bit of everybody, there was grad students from the University of Seattle, there was junkies, there was people in bands, there was alcoholics, there was cab drivers, there was a little bit of everything, you know? There's the spectrum of humanity living at this place. But Seattle was rough, it was tough. It was like, right at that time, everybody started moving there. And I could not find fucking work. I couldn't find work, I, I kept looking for work, I couldn't find work, I'd get little dumb jobs here and there. The things that I did in Seattle were, I had a little tiny room with a desk, a chair, and that's it, and I, would put, I slept on the floor with my, in my sleeping bag. I had a desk and a chair, this gross shag carpet, and uh, what I did in Seattle is I looked for work, I stressed about not having money, I read books, I wrote letters, I lifted weights made out of buckets and rocks that I made, and I jerked off. <laughs> and that's what I did all the time. And, um, you know, I would write letters to my friends back home, like, the ghost of me is writing to the ghost of you, which I, don't, I still don't know what it means, but it sounds kind of fucking cool to me somehow. I read Moby Dick. Thank you. Um, and you know, I just, I was determined to have this different life, but it just kind of wasn't fucking working out. It was like, I couldn't make money. And so I, I eventually I was running out of money and I was running out of money for food. So I would go to food banks and I would go, you know, try to just live off of as little as possible. And the thing I didn't realize is how hard it is to be fucking poor. I mean, the thing with being poor is like, it takes all fucking day, you know? You have to like wait in line. I'm serious, like you can't look for a job if you're in line at this fucking food bank so you can feed yourself. And you can't, you have to go try to get social services. It takes the whole fucking day. It was exhausting. And I got to a point where I was like, I have to get on food stamps. I don't want to be on food stamps. I never thought of myself as the kind of guy that would be on food stamps, but I gotta go. And the whole time I still had this weird new agey kind of like, I know this is the right thing. The universe is gonna provide somehow. I didn't know how, but I, I wanted to believe that was true. And uh, so I took the bus to the social service offices to get food stamps, pick a number, and I'm like, I don't want to be doing this. Fuck, I got to stay here. I've gotta, no, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go home. Right as my number is about to be called, this guy comes in and he goes, hey, does anybody want some cheese? <laughs> and he's holding these two like seven pound logs of cheese. 
like, not quite Velveeta, but like, I just, in my head, I think of it, it's like, it's just a bunch of orange shoelaces and they cut off the tips and they melted them and they made that and called it cheese. That's what it looked like. And I was like, fuck yes, I want some cheese. And to me, I was like, this is the sign. I put my number down. I'm like, I don't need food stamps. I'm set. Thank you. Because this is how it was going to work out. So I took the cheese. I took this log of cheese. It was kind of an oddly hot day in Seattle. So I'm on the bus wrapping this cheese in a jacket to protect it. And people are looking at me like, is that a baby? Or is that a big, weird log of cheese? And I was so excited. And I was like, I took my last, like, whatever it was, 20-something, $30. And I bought enough food that I thought would last me for, like, three weeks to build around this cheese. I got eggs. I got pasta. I got bread. You know, and I'm like, grilled cheese, done. Fuck yeah, we got it. Uh, cheese omelets, yes, we got this. Pasta, yes. And this food, you have to remember that I'm lifting Travis Bickle weights all the time. And I'm 21 and I'm jerking off constantly. So what was supposed, my metabolism is just gone fire. So what was supposed to last three weeks lasted maybe four and a half, five days. So I have nothing left except some oatmeal that I had from my backpacking trip, my trip up, and uh, six pounds of cheese. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, um, all right, I can, I can do this. This is fine. Oatmeal, cheese. Oatmeal's a grain. It's basically like macaroni and cheese. Fucking, you can't keep me down, world. You think you got me? I fucking got you. Watch this. So I fuck, and I'm so excited. I cook up this oatmeal and I put the cheese on it. I'm like, I need seasoning. Oh, what seasoning would I have? Well, I remember that there in the back of the Flophouse communal refrigerator, there's a jar of uh, French mustard that somebody left. And it's old. I mean, it's like, if you think about the fucking transients that lived in this place, it was like a long time ago. Like, I think, like, whoever left that mustard at the time, when I used it, was like, God, remember when I lived in a fucking flop house in Seattle? Wow, that was a rough time. Either that or they had been dead for many, many years at this point. So I'm like, that's my seasoning. I got this. So I, like, scrape off the mustard leather, you know, that's on this thing. And I put it in, and I mix it up. And I'm like, we're set. First bite, I'm like, this is how we fucking survive. Second bite, I'm like, you can't keep me down. I am not going anywhere. Third bite, I'm like, not everything has to be, you know, not, not every piece of food has to be gourmet. It just has to sustain you. Fourth bite, I'm like, what am I eating exactly? And the fifth bite, it, that's when I, re I, I, like, let myself taste it. And I was like, oh, oh. It tasted like, and for some reason in my head, it tasted like that shag carpet that was in my room. Like, it just tasted like melted human dander and sock sweat. It was so fucking gross. And it just hit me, and I spit it out, and I was just like, oh. Oh, this isn't working out. This is my bohemian existence. You know, it's like I came up here to be in a Tom Waits song. <laughs> but I'm in like, I'm in like a Tom Waits nightmare. This sucks. This is, this is not fun. And, you know, it wasn't long after that that I decided I, I, I'm, this is not working. I'm, I'm, I got to leave Seattle. 
And I was so disappointed in myself that I had to go home and I had to like move back in with my mom. And I was like, you, what a fucking loser. I just felt so stupid, you know, especially. Now, thankfully, I hadn't made too big a declaration to my friends. I just kind of like slipped out of town. But, um, you know, I, I also realized in retrospect that Jack Kerouac, he drank himself to death at his mom's house at the end of his life. <laughs> So, you know, maybe I was still on the right track. <laughs> That's my story. Thank you guys very much. So in the last page of On the Road, I describe how the hero, Dean Moriarty, has come to see me all the way from the West Coast just for a day or two. We've just been back and forth across the country several times in cars and now our adventures are over. We're still great friends, but we have to go into later phases of our lives. So there he goes, Dean Moriarty, ragged in the moth-eaten overcoat he brought specially for the freezing temperatures of the East. Walking off alone, and last I saw him, he rounded the corner of 7th Avenue, eyes on the street ahead, and bent to it again. Gone. So, in America, when the sun goes down, and I sit on the old broken down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over to the west coast and all that road going and all the people dreaming in the immensity of it. And in Iowa I know by now that children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry. And tonight the stars will be out and don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? The evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkler dims on the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all the rivers, cups the peaks, and folds the final shore in. Nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. Think of Dean Moriarty, I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. Think of Dean Moriarty, I think of Dean Moriarty. All right. So I grew up in Madison, where I primarily lived with my mom, and then I would spend weekends with my father. And my father resided with his girlfriend, Marilyn. Marilyn and my mom did not have a good relationship, and so she just played a background role, just making sure that we had what we needed when we went by my dad's house and holding my dad accountable to the promises that he made to us, such as taking us to the duck pond. So let me tell you a little bit about Marilyn. Marley is a heavyset white woman with this curly hair that she's always dyed bright red. She's really popular, a successful lawyer. She practiced family law. She loves basketball, super smart, and she's pretty damn funny. So if you ask Marley, she will tell you that when she dies, she wants to donate her body to science. Why, you ask? Because she's always wanted to go to medical school, and that's her guaranteed way in. <laughs> I also remember this time, I was about five years old and my sister was about six years old and we had taken a trip to Disney World. 
So myself, my dad, my sister, and Merle, we were all swimming in the pool. And my sister gets out of the pool to go inside to use the bathroom. And while she's inside, my dad sees this frog, and he decides that he wants to play a trick on her. And Merle's like, yeah, 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 get the frog and put it under the cup over there. So when Dewan comes out, you'll have to pick up the cup, and she'll see the frog. And so my sister starts coming back towards the pool, and Merle's telling me, shh, you know, she's coming, she's coming. And so my dad says, hey, Dewan. Pick up that cup and pass it to me. And of course, she picks up the cup, and then this frog jumps on her. She freaks out. She goes running into the house, screaming, and then Merle goes running in behind her. My dad and I stayed in the pool laughing at it. Uh, and so my sister comes back out, and she's holding hands with Merle, and I hear Merle telling her, like, don't worry. The frog's not there anymore. It was just a joke, Dewan. Get back in the pool with us. Everything will be okay. And she decided to rejoin us back in the pool. Uh, Merle had always decided that when she retired, she was going to move to St. Croix, United States Virgin Islands. And so it made sense that she was going to move there because St. Croix and Merle actually have a lot in common. Nothing on St. Croix opens until noon. Merle sleeps until noon. (laughs) No one on St. Croix is a stranger. And Merle loves meeting new people and treating them like old friends. And it's just a really laid back place. Everybody goes with the flow. And that's totally Merle's personality. So the two years before she got ready to retire, her and my dad had been planning to separate because my dad ultimately decided that he did not want to move to St. Croix. He wanted to stay on the mainland so he could be close to us. And so when Merle moved, although they did not live together anymore, they remained very close. They always talked, at least on a monthly basis, and they've always had a lot of love for each other. Once Merle moved to St. Croix, that's when she and I really had an opportunity to bond. I remember my first trip to St. Croix. I had graduated from UW-Milwaukee here with my undergrad. And as a graduation gift, Merle had bought me a ticket to come to St. Croix and see her. And so I remember getting there. It was really dark at night. And so I was exhausted from the flight. Merle picks me up from the hotel, I mean, from the airport, and we go to her condo. And when we get there, I'm exhausted, so I just go straight to sleep. The next morning, she wakes me up. She wakes me up early, which is weird. And she tells me to come out on the balcony with her. And I remember I get to the balcony door, and for the first time, I see the ocean. And it is the most beautiful sight I'd ever seen. I was just in awe. And I couldn't believe that her condo was like four feet from the beach, and that's where I was staying. And so she and I spent a lot of time out on that balcony reading books together and doing crossword puzzles and just talking and catching up. And on that trip, I went to my very first drag show. I also uh, went to my very first parade where they had these extravagant costumes and the people were dancing. You got to interact with the actual parade, which was kind of cool. We went to Sandcastle. Now, Sandcastle is about a half a mile or so from Merle's condo. It's a beautiful uh, hotel that also has this beachfront restaurant. And so we would spend New Year's Eve there having dinner there. Oftentimes, we would go there for Sunday brunch. And any other special occasions, we would go to Sandcastle. And then trivia. So... Merle's a trivia guru, like that's her thing. And she wanted me to go to trivia with her. And initially, I had agreed to go. But as we're getting ready to go to trivia, I'm kind of hesitant. And I'm like, uh, maybe you should just go without me and we can meet back up at home later. And she's like, well, Rhonda, why don't you want to go to trivia? And I'm like, I'm not really a trivia person, Merle. And so she looks at me and she's like, don't be nervous about trivia, Rhonda. It's going to be a great time. Like, we're all on one team. If you know the answer, say it. If you don't. Keep your mouth shut. It's not that big of a deal. I'd like for you to come and meet my trivia friends and have a great time. And so next thing I know, I'm doing trivia on Thursdays with Merle at Rainbow Bar. And for the next 10 years, that became our tradition. I would go to St. Croix, 
for two weeks and we do the same activities and enjoy the time together. At the end of 2017, Hurricane Maria hit St. Croix. A couple weeks after the hurricane, I had gotten a call from Merle's friend, Brian. He calls up and he's like, hey, you know, Rhonda, how you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm great now that you've called because I've been trying to get through for the past couple of weeks and the lines have been down. So I hadn't been able to talk to Merle. I've been worried about her. And I say, you know, have you talked to Merle? And he's like, yeah, actually, that's why I was calling you. Merle's staying with us. And I'm like, great. And he's like, yeah, but let me tell you why she's staying with us. So she's staying with us because we got a call from a hotel that she had actually checked herself into because she was fearful that her condo would be damaged because it was right up there on the ocean. And the attendant had seen her wandering around the hotel on several occasions where she was lost and couldn't find her room. And so they were concerned about her staying there by herself. So they gave us a call and asked us to come and pick her up. And then he says, you know, Rhonda, since she's been with us, I'm kind of concerned about Merle's memory. And maybe somebody should come down here and check on her. So I say, okay, and I hang up. And honestly, when I hung up, I was just thinking like, oh, Brian's being dramatic. Like I just seen Merle 14 months ago. She was fine. I talked to her on the phone every month. She sounds fine. So he's just being a little bit dramatic. But I call up her niece and I see if her niece can go down there and check on her. And her niece said that she wasn't able to do so. So I called my dad and I told him about the situation. And he's like, you know, her niece is her only living relative. And then it's us. And so Rhonda, you have to go. And so I immediately found myself like in this caretaker role. The one thing that I love the most about going to St. Croix is flying in over the island because you have the beautiful blue ocean and then you have all this lush greenery from the trees and then these little spots of colors from the brightly painted blue and orange and yellow and pink houses. And it's just a beautiful sight. And so as I'm getting ready to go down to check on Merle and the plane's preparing to fly over the island, I'm getting excited because, again, I love the sight. And I look down. And all I see is this blue and all this brown. And then I realized that the blue, it's the tarps that people are using because they lost their roofs. And the brown is all the earth that's exposed because the trees were ripped up and they were thrown everywhere. They were on top of people's houses. They were in the middle of the roads. Power lines were everywhere. And I, it was a sight that it, it just I just couldn't stand to see. So I closed my eyes as I cried and I silently prayed for all those that were devastated by the storm. The plane lands and I get to my hotel. My hotel had obviously suffered some damage. I got a good night's rest and then the next morning, Brian brings Merle to my hotel. And when I see Merle for the first time, I'm taken aback at how thin she was. And then... She had on gym shoes. She always wears Birkenstocks, so that was weird. She had on gym shoes. And then her hair, which is always bright red, was white, and it was, like, sticking up all over her head. And so I go to give her a hug because that's what we do, hug her, and she gives me a kiss on the cheek. And she reaches out her hand to shake my hand, so it was, like, this awkward kind of greeting. And I just was like, hmm, okay, something seems a bit off here. And so then I tell her that she couldn't stay at the hotel with me because of the damage, but we would go get her a room down at Sandcastle. And she looks at me, and she's like, Sandcastle? Do you even know where Sandcastle is? And I was like, yeah, Merle, I know where Sandcastle is. Let's get your room at Sandcastle. So I get her a room and set her in for the night. The next morning, I go to pick her up from her hotel room because the plan is to go down to her condo together to assess the damage and see what we're going to do next. When I go to pick her up, she's all ready. And before we leave out, I see her keys were on the nightstand. And I say, you know, Merle, get your keys. And she's, Rhonda, just wait a minute. Just calm down. Just stop. Just hold on a second. Give me a moment. So I'm 
thinking to myself, like, she's never been upset with me, and I've never seen her frustrated so quickly. And so I wait, and I watch her, and she's kind of shuffling her feet around the hotel room, looking around for her keys, and then she sits on the bed, and her eyes are, like, darting side to side, and she starts to get frustrated again, and so I gently start to point at the nightstand where her keys are, and immediately, she's, Rhonda, just stop it, just give me a minute. And so I sat there for 20 minutes while she looked for her keys, and every day for the next two weeks when I picked her up each morning, I waited 20 minutes for her to look for her keys. So that first day, after she finds her keys, we go down to her condo. And when we enter inside the condo, the thing that strikes me the most is the smell. Because the condo hadn't been open in weeks, and there's been no electricity. And so this refrigerator has all this rotted food, and it is covered in maggots. And she looks at this refrigerator and says, Huh, a little bleach and water? I could save my refrigerator. Okay. So then I'm looking around and I notice that her TV is missing. And I say, well, Merle, what happened to your TV? And she's like, oh, I met this guy. He said he was going to help me after the storm. So I gave him my keys. So maybe he has my TV for safekeeping. I said, well, do you know this guy's name, Merle? She's like, no, Ron, I don't remember his name. Okay. Well, did you get your keys back? No, I didn't get my keys back. Why are you asking me so many questions? All right. So let's just look around the condo and see what it is you'd like to keep and what we should throw away. And immediately she goes to her bedroom, and on her bed, it was a bunch of paperback books that had been sitting on her bed that was soaking wet for all these weeks. The pages were stuck together, many of the words in the book were missing, and she's sitting there flipping through these books one after the next. She's not concerned about her gold jewelry in the box or her diamond rings. She's not concerned about the expensive paintings that we need to salvage or her important documents. She's worried about these books. And that's when I realized, like, something is really wrong here. And I cannot leave her on this island. Because if I do, somebody's going to rob her. Somebody's going to take advantage of her. Or she's going to be lost, either lost in her own mind in this house or, like, lost out there in the world and nobody's going to be looking for her. So I know that I need to bring her back to Wisconsin with me. And so I say, hey, Merle, why don't you come back to Wisconsin with me for a little bit, spend some time, and once electricity comes back on, then maybe you can come back here and your condo can get fixed up and we can get somebody to help you around the house. And she's like, no, I'm getting a generator. I have a maid. I'm good. I don't need to go to Wisconsin with you. I'm fine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here. And I'm thinking, shit, she can't stay here. <laughs> and so I call my dad and I tell my dad the situation. And my dad calls up her friend. And so on a three-way call, they both talk to her. My dad starts a conversation. Hey, babe, don't you want to come to Wisconsin for a little while? You haven't been here in like 10 years, and you love the snow. The winter's coming. You can see the snow again. You see (laughs) Christmas is coming. (laughs) He said, "Uh, Christmas is coming. You know, I'll cook a good Christmas dinner. We can catch up on old times. And her her friend chimes in and is like, yeah, Merle, we can get the old crew together. We can go to your favorite restaurants. We'll have a good time. You should just come and visit for a little while. And Merle's like, all right, well, I guess I'll come and visit for a while. And immediately, I'm feeling relief. My shoulders relax. That rock that was in my stomach is now gone. My head is now clear. And I'm actually feeling hungry for the first time. (laughs) But I'm still kind of worried about how this is going to impact my family because she's coming to stay with me, not with my dad. And so I called my husband and I'm kind of upset, crying about it when I tell him about the condition that Merle's in. And I tell him, you know, babe, she has to come home with me. 
And my husband, he responds, oh, my baby, don't worry about this, my baby. Bring her, bring her. This is like your mother. We'll care her very well. We'll love her. Don't worry, my baby. Bring her, bring her. And my husband's from Tanzania. (laughs) So that is the response that I needed from him. I felt very good about the fact that she was going to come back with me. So we get to Milwaukee, and as she's staying with me, I start to notice some other things about her, like she's not eating. And then I noticed that one day I had come home from work and I walk into the fenced in backyard and she's walking her dog on a leash and it's cold outside. So she has on her coat and her boots and no pants. And I say, well, Merle, where's your pants? And she shrugs and says, well, I couldn't find them. I'm like, okay. So now I know we need to get her to the doctor. So I get her in the memory clinic over at Freighter. A couple weeks later, I get a call and it, from the nurse, and she's like, hi, you know, may I speak to Rhonda? This is she. This is a nurse from Dr. Book's office, and I was calling to give you some news about Merle. So I say, okay. And she said, Rhonda, Merle has dementia, and it's likely Alzheimer's, but that can't be diagnosed until she's deceased. And she's also way too thin to starting the medication. And immediately, I am crushed. I'm crushed thinking about, she's only 71 years old. And she's going to forget me soon. And I don't want her to forget me. I don't want her to forget the fact that she never wanted kids until she met me. And then she called me her daughter. I didn't want her to forget that every year we're supposed to rate the NBA cutie and the NBA asshole of the year. I didn't, I didn't want her to forget that when she comes to Milwaukee for a Bucks game, that we're supposed to go out to eat first. I didn't want her to forget any of those things. And so... I was hurt for her, and I cried thinking about how I'm going to tell her this because, you see, the only reason Merle went to that doctor's appointment was because she was going to prove me wrong and show me there was nothing wrong with her memory. And I was right, and I actually did not want to be right. And so I call my dad, and I tell my dad about the diagnosis. And he says, well, why don't you bring Merle to Madison, and we'll have dinner, and we'll tell her together. And so... Merle and I drive to Madison. We meet my dad and my sister at Applebee's. My dad and my sister are on one side of the table, and Merle and myself on the other side of the table. And we decide we're going to have dinner first so we don't upset her appetite because it was already pretty fragile. So we finish eating. My dad's looking at me, and I'm looking at him. And he knows that I can't say it. And so he says, hey, Merle, babe, we got something to tell you. Merle's like, yeah. And he says, well, Rhonda got a call from the doctor, and They said that you have dementia, and they think it's Alzheimer's. And then there's this pause. And Merrily's like, well, it could be worse. Like, I could be dying. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So after dinner, Merrily and I are taking a trip back to Milwaukee to go home, and Merrily looks at me, and she's like, why did you bring me all the way to Madison to tell me that? And I was like, well, I was worried about like how you would respond. I wanted to make sure that you had the support you need. And she's like, Rhonda, I'm not going to remember this shit in a week or two anyway. <laughs> so at that point, Merle realized that going back to St. Croix was not going to be an option for her. And so lucky for her, she's always been financially stable. She's always had uh, money and saved money. And so to find an assistant living place for her was not a challenge. The only requirement was that they had to have trivia. And so my sister was able to find her a great assistant living place in Madison. And she still resides there today. 
and she's happy. She's really happy there. And they're taking good care of her. And we uh, spend a lot of time together with her. And we spend holidays together as a big family. And so for me, this story really is about taking care of those you love and making sure that you keep memories. Because now I'm a new mom. And I make sure that we take... <laughs> I make sure that we're always taking lots of pictures and I'm always journaling so that my daughter will always have those memories because that's something I wish I had done over those 10 years when Merle and I were bonding all the time. Now I know the importance of documenting that, making memories and keeping memories and taking care of those you love. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Bell and Sebastian behind me now. And we just heard from Rhonda Marwa in Milwaukee. Before that, a little interstitial by Jack Kerouac himself. And now I want to talk to you about how no one's got time to go to the post office now. Who's got time for all the traffic and the parking and lugging things around? It's a hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. It's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Over 700,000 small businesses use it. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. So just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Our final story on this week's episode, oh my gosh, I love our next storyteller. So beautiful. You know, this was told in Los Angeles at the RISK Live show at the Bootleg Theater, where we do the show once a month, and... 
It kind of stopped me in my tracks when I was listening to the recording as I was walking through Brooklyn, you know, listening to the recording of the show as soon as it got to me the next day. And so I was so excited to share it with you. Here she is now. This is Christine with a story we call Fixable. So it's 2012, and I'm scrolling through Facebook, and I see a post from an old friend of mine from my first year of teaching. Her name is Julia. Julia was beautiful, like piercing hazel eyes and full curly hair and olive skin, and the picture that she had posted was her in a hospital bed, and she was gray, and there were these dark circles under her eyes, and her hair was stringy, and the caption said, I'm dying. I'm dying of kidney failure. All of my friends and family have already tried to donate to me and have been rejected for one reason or another, so this is quite literally my last resort. Like, is there someone on Facebook who's willing to donate a kidney to me? And I dropped everything, and I messaged her. I said, Julia, I'm so sorry. I didn't even know you were sick. Like, absolutely, what do you need me to do? And thus began this really intense series of tests, and I was actually approved. I got past them. I was approved to donate a kidney, but Julia and I were not compatible, so I couldn't give her mine. And at the very last minute, Julia's mother, who had previously been rejected for a small medical issue, got approved. And I got to step back and watch Julia's mom donate on her behalf. And I got to see a transformation that was almost overnight from this gray person back to this Julia that I had known all those years ago. And it was incredibly inspiring to watch. And then a few years later, Julia got pregnant. She had a baby And the way that I explain it to people is like the first time I saw a picture of this child, like something clicked inside of me. I was like, this life and everything it will ever do and every life it will ever touch like only exists because someone was willing to donate a kidney to my friend Julia. And like now that I know how hard it is to be approved to donate and now that I know that I can, like I can't justify keeping my second kidney. It feels like hoarding. So I called the hospital where my friend Julia had gotten her transplant and told them, like, I want to do this for a stranger. And so I went back in, and and it had been long enough where they made me do all the tests again. And part of the test was this really intense psychological exam. And I remember one of the questions on the psychological exam was, if we called your family and close friends, would they be surprised? that you're doing this? And I thought that was such a good question. And I thought about it, and I was like, God, I hope not. I and mean, I don't think so. I mean, my, my work, I mean, they know my work in urban public education. They know my political activism around issues of social justice and equity. I mean, hopefully you would understand that this feels like a no-brainer to me. It feels like something I have to do. And I found out later they actually did call my family and close friends. <laughs> And no one was surprised, which just felt like such an honor to me. 
And the hospital hooked me up with this organization called the National Kidney Registry. And it found the most compatible human being in the country that I could give my kidney to. And all they told me was that it was a human being in Ohio. That's all I knew. And as the surgery got closer, I found myself getting very nervous. I mean, like, I had never gone through any major medical anything before, and I was reading about this surgery, and it's kind of insane. <laughs> like, they have these three laparoscopic holes, right? And one is for the camera, and then there's two for these kind of snipper guys, and they go in and snip everything around the kidney, and they blow your abdomen up so that they can see everything better, so you look like Violet from Willy Wonka. And then they make a larger incision at the bottom of your abdomen, and the surgeon literally puts his hand inside of you and Cali maws your kidney. <laughs> I was like, this is such a disturbing mental image. And also, like, the risks of a major surgery that I'm electing to do. I mean, like, what if I die on the operating room table? I mean, it's rare, but it could happen. And it's Boston and Ohio in February. Like, what if my kidney dies on the runway in a snowstorm and all of this was for nothing? And what if someone I really love years down the road needs a kidney and I've already given mine away to, like, Joe Schmo in Ohio? <laughs> and, like, in 2012, it was so much easier because it was Julia, right? It was my friend Julia, and she was sitting right there in front of me dying, like, obviously. But now I'm sending my kidney to the ether, <laughs> Ohio, you know? And my mom is a nurse, and she came up to be my caretaker, and she was like, Christine, you, you gotta give these people faces. You gotta give this woman a face. And I was like, but is it a woman? <laughs> right? Like, I don't know anything about this person. Like, what if my kidney is going to a dude and will start creating urine that will pass through a penis? That's so sci-fi. <laughs> But in my heart, I knew it was a woman. I felt like this is a woman. And so I gave her a face, and I rolled into the operating room, having never been more sure of anything in my life. But I don't lie to people about the process either, and the first few days of recovery were very, very hard. Like I found out that I couldn't take prescription pain medicine. They took the IV out and tried to replace it with a pill, and my stomach was not having it. And guys, like puking, objectively terrible, always. But puking when you have a giant abdominal wound, it felt like a blacksmith shoving a newly forged spear into my side, just over and over. And I was so frozen with the pain of it that I just puked all over myself. And I remember holding the bars of the hospital bed and crying and saying, like, I don't want to regret this, mama. And my mom took this warm washcloth and she was wiping me up. She's like, Christine, you will not regret this and she was so right and I just kept thinking about how like these couple weeks of discomfort could potentially be helping this person have a lifetime of health like what an easy trade right slowly my recovery got much easier you know in two weeks I went to the movies like a normal two-kidneyed person <laughs> And, you know, at a month mark, I could take a small jog. And then, you know, by the time the year mark rolled around, I honestly forgot about it most days, which is why I was so surprised when I got an email out of nowhere. And the opening line was, I finally know the name of the person who gave me a second chance at life. And the screen immediately got blurry because <laughs> I knew exactly who it was. And it was signed, Leslie. Leslie. 
and it was her. It was the woman that I had imagined. And she left her phone number. And I called her, and the first thing she said was, I literally have a piece of you inside of me. (laughs) Isn't that wild? (laughs) And, you know, my incision scar kind of ached psychomatically when she said it. And she told me about how sick she had been. You know, her creatinine, which is the protein that your kidney is responsible for filtering out, had been at 6.0. And a normal creatinine is between 0.5 and 1.1. And her filtration rate, which you want to be as close to 100% as possible, had dropped to 8%. 8 Like anything under 15 is considered total kidney failure. And she had just been chained to the bed and just dragging herself to work every day, trying to avoid dialysis. And I said, oh, what kind of work do you do? And I was not at all prepared for her answer. She said, oh, my corrections officer. And then she mentioned the name of a jail in southern Ohio that is infamous for its cruelty to inmates and for its violence. My kidney, my kidney that had joined me for so many years of trying to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline, of like trying to make real criminal justice reform happen and make it more restorative and less punitive. Like, of all the human beings in the country, my kidney had gone to someone who kept people in cages. And I didn't know how to handle it. And I can't tell you anything about the rest of the phone conversation except that I kind of held it together. And then we hung up. And I didn't talk to Leslie for a year. She didn't have social media. I can understand why she didn't call me. I think it's kind of awkward, right, to talk about something mundane when there's this big thing in the air, like, how's the weather? Also, thanks again for saving my life, you know? And I didn't call because I was feeling so conflicted and judgmental about her work, and I didn't know how to deal with the feelings. And last summer... I made a really big decision to quit my job in Boston and move to the beautiful weather of Southern California. And I was gonna pass right through Southern Ohio. And I thought about it for a long time. And I called her and I asked her if she wanted to meet up in person. And she said, absolutely, absolutely. And we made plans to meet at this cheesy chicken wing restaurant (laughs) in Southern Ohio. And I sat on the patio and I waited for her. And like we hadn't even thought to tell each other what we looked like. <laughs> like I hadn't seen a picture of her. She hadn't seen a picture of me. But guys, it did not matter. Like as soon as I saw this little five three brunette spark plug like walking up to the patio, like I knew it was her. And she knew it was me. I got up and we just hugged and we didn't say a word at first. We were just crying. She had my eyes so weird and I know completely unrelated (laughs) but it was wild that she had my eyes and we sat down and we talked for over an hour and she told me about how her creatinine is now down to 0.9 which is well within the healthy range and she was like Christine I have so much more energy for my husband and for my son she's like I can go to concerts now I love concerts I couldn't go to concerts for years And she showed me a picture of what she looked like the day before surgery. And guys, it was not even recognizable, this person in the picture. It was like ashen. So, so sick. Completely different from this person behind the phone in front of me. 
And it made those hard days in the hospital seem so small. And she started talking about her work, and I braced myself because I knew that it was going to be tough for me. And she said, you know, Christina, I was a juvenile social worker for years. I loved that work. I loved it, but I didn't have health insurance. And when I got sick, I had to quit and find another job, and the only one available that had health insurance was at this prison. She's like, you know, but I'm a case manager there, and I run the rehabilitation center. (laughs) And this wave of shame... (laughs) It came over me because like, I had robbed myself of a relationship with this person for a year because I had been so overcome with judgment and I hadn't even given her a chance to tell me anything, really, about her work. She was wearing this T-shirt. It had like, a little cupcake on it. And I made a comment about it. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, so I just came from a bake sale. We were doing a bake sale for a fellow... CO, and he's just been diagnosed with cancer, so we're raising money for him. And I was like, that's so sweet. She's like, yeah, we do that. They did that for me when I got sick years ago, but I gave all the money back. And I was like, Leslie, why did you do that? Like, we were just talking about how tough this was for you financially. And she looked at me and smiled, and she said, because I didn't have cancer. She said, what I had was fixable, and I knew that you were coming. Thank you. For this week's episode, folks, this is Vampire Weekend behind me now, and we just heard from Christine. Don't forget that the Risk book makes for great summer reading, and it's available wherever books are sold, and our series of Amazon original stories are all so great. They are available for Kindle, or you can listen to them as audiobooks. There's My Boy, Their Son is our latest one, and then there's a whole series of them called This Can't Be Happening. Look that up on Amazon. Also, you can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. And in order to pitch us, everything you need to know is at risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a helpful little video where I talk to you for five minutes about how to pitch us. There's a helpful audio about how to start workshopping your own story for Risk. So go to risk-show.com slash submissions and pitch us your story today. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I've been cheating on, cheating on you. You've been cheating on me. But I've been cheating through this life. Don't you give it with me? 
Well, there was an Easter egg around here. 